It's time for Truth Unfiltered with Pastor Chad Harvey. Jesus says to this church, you have a little strength. It doesn't seem like a compliment, does it? You imagine Jesus looking out across the assembly and saying, across the assembly, I'm looking at y'all, y'all a bunch of puny people. But that's really what he's saying to this church. But, it, but it's a compliment. I think what he's saying is this. Hey, you're relying on my power. You're not relying on your lights and your smoke machine and your TV show and your radio. You're not relying on that. It's not by might. It's not by power, but it's by my spirit. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, when I'm weak, that's when he can work. That's when he's strong. And Jesus says to this church, you're not relying on your strength. You have just a little power. And because you understand it's not about you, it's about me, I'm working through you. That's Chad Harvey, and welcome to today's broadcast of Truth Unfiltered. We're glad you're here. Pastor Chad is the teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, leading you to a deeper understanding of the Bible by putting the scriptures in context, emphasizing how God's Word applies to our daily lives. We invite you to join us and allow the Holy Spirit to bring Truth Unfiltered to you. Here's Pastor Chad. This morning I said, team, I don't know why, but at the house today I was thinking about y'all, praying about y'all, and the Lord reminded me of the story of the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem. Have y'all read that story before, right? And all the crowds are cheering. That donkey would be ridiculous if he said, look at all these people cheering for me. Wow, they really like me. He kind of puts his shoulders back a little bit and kind of struts a little bit because he thinks all the people are watching him. He said, look, the people were not there to celebrate the donkey. The donkey was just there to hold up Jesus. On Sunday morning, I'd I'd be foolish to say, wow, they're here to see me. This team would be foolish to say, look at all the people cheering for me. Y'all aren't cheering for me. You're not cheering for them. We're here as a church to hold up Jesus Christ. That's, That's why we're here. We're centered around Jesus. Hey, do you know what's hit me? Again, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm going off a little tangent today. I, I, was, I was so depressed about my sermon, first service and second service, and now I realize it's not my fault. It's the crowd's fault. They weren't cheering me like y'all are. So that's, thank y'all. All right, so here you go. Number three, a biblical New Testament church is committed to missions. Look at verse eight. See, I have set before you an open door and nobody can shut it. In the Bible, open doors symbolize mission evangelistic opportunities. Let me give you some examples. Acts 14, 27. Now, when they come together, they gather together, the missionaries are talking to the church, and they reported all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. Open door. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 through 9. Paul says, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened for me. Open door. Second Corinthians 2.12. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Open door. Colossians 4.3. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Open door. And so when Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I love y'all, y'all are doing great. Because he's saying, I gave you an open door for missions. Y'all did not turn in on yourselves and say, we're in this little life raft, let's huddle together, hope the liberals don't get us, and Jesus Christ just comes back. No, y'all are going out and changing this world for me, the open door. And we're in the kind of church that Jesus honors. We've got to understand, our focus is to, 
is to share the gospel with this whole world. In fact, yesterday we had our membership class in here. Yesterday we had 150 people in here to take this membership class. It was actually really good. And a lot of them come from non-Pentecostal backgrounds. And here's what I want you to understand this. If you're not from a Pentecostal background, when you hear me say Pentecost or Pentecostal, don't think freaky, don't think swinging from the chandeliers, don't think snake handling. When I say Pentecost, I want you to think of one word, missions. Because the purpose of Pentecost is God empowering you and me to take the good news of Jesus Christ out of this world. And when there's a church that is truly spirit-filled, it's going to be engaged in global missions. In fact, A.J. Gordon, a preacher from the 1800s and an author from the 1800s, he said, you know, study revivals. He said, whenever in any century there has been a fresh outpouring of the Spirit, there has followed inevitably a fresh endeavor in the work of evangelizing the world. Do you see that? Anytime there's a revival, a true revival, there's going to be a passion to win souls to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw this a couple years ago. So uh, Pastor Pepper's our youth pastor now, have been Pastor Wes. And before Pastor West, it's Pastor Ashley. I, I knew him back in the mountains of North Carolina when he was a canine officer, and I knew the call of God was on his life. So when I came here, we needed a youth pastor. I brought him on, and he was te- trying to teach the youth this connection between the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and missions. And he took a youth group to Guatemala years ago, what, 10 years ago, however long, to Guatemala. And while he was there in Guatemala, He's trying to talk to them about evangelism and the power of the Holy Spirit. Evangelism and the Spirit. And they came upon a little 10-year-old girl who had never spoken before. Never. She could hear, but she had never spoken in her 10 years of life. And the mother was there, and they asked the mother, can we pray for her? She said, yes. And they gathered around this little girl and started praying for her. And somebody in the group said, I just felt impressed by the Spirit to tell this girl in Spanish, just say the name of Jesus. And this 10-year-old girl who had never spoken opened her mouth and just started saying over and over again, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And God healed her. And that opened a great door for evangelism right there in that little village. The connection of the outpouring of the Spirit and global missions. And so a true biblical church is led by a pastor. It's focused on Jesus. It's committed to missions. And then a biblical New Testament church relies on the power of God. Look at verse 8. Jesus says to this church, you have a little strength. It doesn't seem like a compliment, does it? You imagine Jesus looking out at cross assembly and saying, cross assembly, I'm looking at y'all, y'all a bunch of puny people. But that's really what he's saying to this church. But But it's a compliment. I think what he's saying is this. Hey, you're relying on my power. You're not relying on your lights and your smoke machine and your TV show and your radio. You're not relying on that. It's not by might. It's not by power, but it's by my spirit. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, when I'm weak, that's when he can work. That's when he's strong. And Jesus says to the church, you're not relying on your strength. You have just a little power. And because you understand it's not about you, it's about me, I'm working through you. That one old preacher, A.C. Dixon, said this, when we rely on organization, we get what organization can do. When we rely on education, we get what education can do. When we rely on eloquence, we get what eloquence can do. But when we rely on prayer, we get what God can do. And that was that church there at Philadelphia. All right, number five, here's the final one. A biblical New Testament church is committed to scripture. Do you see that in verse eight? You have kept my word. Now, what does it mean that they're committed to Scripture? They're committed to the Bible. There's several things. Number one, fundamentally, it means they read and they knew their Bible. 
I was going to tell you something. There is a rash of biblical ignorance in the American church today. We don't know our Bibles. There's a reason why a 90-day wonder out of the Jehovah's Witnesses can theologically dismantle most Christians today because they know their heresy better than we know the truth. And so you've got to know the Word of God. And we don't have that in the American church. In fact, listen to this. I think it was a Barna study. According to this Barna study, 82% of Americans believe that this, this phrase, God helps those who help themselves, they believe it's in the Bible. Y'all do realize that's not in the Bible, right? You say, well, that's the broader population. Yeah, the evangelicals did better by 1%. 81% of evangelicals think that that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. A Barnard poll indicated that at least 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> okay. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that a very high percentage thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were a husband and wife. And a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Preached the Sermon on the Mount. And so when Jesus said, you've kept my word, he said, number one, you know my word. Number two, you stand under the authority of the Bible. I've said this before. As followers of Jesus, our life needs to be lived like this. I live under the authority of the word of God. The word of God determines how I live, how I think, my worldview. But too many Christians live their lives like this. They are standing in authority over the word of God. And I read into the Bible what I want the Bible to say. I read in the Bible my definition of marriage. I read into my Bible my definition of what's right and what's wrong. You can't live like that. As followers of Jesus, we stand under the authority of the word. Hey, a lot of y'all are living under the authority of Facebook. If 99% of my friends think that this lifestyle is perfectly acceptable, I guess it's perfectly acceptable. No, you don't stand under the authority of Mark Zuckerberg. You stand under the authority of the word of God. And the word of God has got to determine how we think, what we believe, our entire worldview comes under the authority of the word of God. When Jesus says, you have kept my word, it also means, church, y'all have taught all of the word of God. Now, I'm going to tell you a rhetorical advice that's being used out there. And I'm going to, when I say what I'm about to say, okay, don't amen me for just a second. Because I'm going to say something. Some of y'all are going to say amen. I'm going to say, no, I'm trying to prove a point. Don't amen me. So here's what I hear, and it's a rhetorical device designed to shut your mouth. And it's this. Church, why are we so worried about abortion and gay marriage, when all these people are dying and going to hell, we got bigger things to worry about. Stop worrying about all this stuff because people are dying and going to hell. And people clap over that. That is a rhetorical device designed to shut you down. Because here's what Jesus Christ said in Matthew 28. He says, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teaching them to observe how much? All, everything I have commanded you. Everything, not just evangelism. Did you know that Jesus taught that children are precious and valuable. Did you know that? Do you know he taught that more than once? And so why do we as a church go into this culture and say, what we are doing to our children is wrong. Slaughtering children is wrong. Keeping the abortion mills open while we shut down the church was wrong because Jesus taught us children are precious in his sight. That is preaching the whole counsel of God. I don't know how much longer... I don't know how we've dodged these bullets on WRL. It's going to end soon, I know, but I'm going to say this. Our world says 
Gay marriage, what I call gay mirage, because it's not even real, it's okay and it's acceptable. Jesus taught us, no, he taught us several times. Marriage is between one man, one woman for life. If we want to teach everything Jesus has commanded us, we have to teach that as well. Y'all with me on that? And so that's what it means to stand under the authority of the word of God. All right. So Jesus says this. He says, Church of Philadelphia, I'm going to give you some promises. You do what I tell you to do. You keep doing this. Two promises. There's more, but let me give you two. Number one, look at verse nine. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I've loved you. It's the first promise. Now, who are these people, Jesus says, that they say they're Jews, but they're not really Jews? Well, there's several possibilities. One, uh, there's something called replacement theology. Have you heard of that? Uh, Replacement theology says that the church has replaced Israel. And God is done with Israel. He's through with Israel. Y'all are the new Israel. There's two problems with that. Number one, it opens the door to anti-Semitism. Number two, there are promises God made to Israel that have never been fulfilled, geographical promises, and it makes God a liar if Israel's done away with, okay? So he could be talking to these Judaizers who are teaching everybody, y'all are the new Jews, and Jesus says, no, you're not. Or he could be talking to, to people who are trying to put Christians back under the law. That was all over the New Testament, where people come in the church and say, I'm so glad you're saved. I'm so glad you're baptized. I'm so proud of you. But you know, you're not a fulfilled Christian yet. You got to do more. You got to go back under the law. No barbecue, no shrimp, wear the yarmulkes, blow the shofars, because if you really want to be saved, you got to go back under the law and observe the festivals and all that. I have that problem right here in this church. I want to say to some of the things people think Jesus is saying. You're not Jews. Take off the yarmulke. Stop blowing the shofar. You're not a Jew. You're a Gentile, okay? He could be talking about that. Or probably what he's talking about is um, there was a strong Jewish community in Philadelphia that was attacking the church. And I think it was Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, later on said that there was a revival. A lot of those Jews that had been attacking Christians got saved and started following Jesus. And the promise may be that Jesus is saying to these people, these people who are Jews that are attacking you, they're not really Jews. Real Jews would not treat people the way they're, they're treating you. And they would recognize their Messiah. But Jesus is saying, watch, you keep doing what you're going to do. One day they're going to fall and you're going to see them worship me. You're going to see them come to me. And a great example of that is the Apostle Paul. He was a Jew that persecuted Christians. He went to arrest Christians, but Jesus arrested him. And he gets saved. And the Christian church watched him fall at the feet of Jesus and worship Jesus. I was talking to a missionary a little while back who served in Indonesia in the most fundamentalist state of Indonesia, which is a very fundamentalist uh, Islamic country. And he said, in this particular state where I'm at, it was ruled by the imams. They were under Sharia, Sharia law. You couldn't build a church. You couldn't convert. It was a very difficult place. And then the tsunami hit. Y'all remember the tsunami? And he said, me and some fellow symbols of God Christians, we mobilized the church to go in and rescue and rebuild and help. And he said, all the um, secular humanitarian agencies were like, this is too rough. They all pulled out. We're the ones that stayed. And he said, one day as we're working from early in the morning to late at night, this Muslim that was with me turned out of the blue and looked at me and said, everything they've told us about you Christians is wrong. Y'all are good people. And he said, when the imams saw that we had stayed and what we were doing, he said, you know what? 
they allowed us to start building churches there in that part of, of Indonesia. And in fact, they turned a blind eye when we led others to Jesus Christ. What happened? Their enemies fell at the feet of Jesus because the church was the church. And that's the first promise. And then there's a second promise here in verse 10. It says, to the church of Philadelphia, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. Now, I'm going to share, look, I'm going to share a challenging concept with you. And I don't know if you're going to be able to get it or not, not because I don't trust in your intelligence, y'all smart people. I don't trust in my ability to articulate it, but I'm going to try my best to articulate this. Remember I told you, these seven letters were written to seven specific churches in Turkey in the first century. But there's some indication that there's a deeper meaning to these seven letters, to these seven churches. Why these seven churches? And why this order? There were other churches out there in that area. Why did Jesus write it to these seven particular churches? And there is an indication that um, from the beginning of the church in you know, 30 AD until the time that Jesus Christ comes back, there are seven distinct ages of the church that follow the trajectory of these churches. For example, the first church we talked about a few weeks ago was the church at Ephesus. Y'all remember that? It was the apostolic church, roughly, you know, 30 AD to about 100 AD. These, these uh, dates aren't set in stone. That They had started out on fire for Jesus. And then toward the end of that century, they had begun to lose their first love, just like the church at Ephesus. The second church we studied a few weeks ago was the church at Smyrna. Remember, that was the persecuted church. And right after the apostolic Ephesian era, from 100 AD to about 312 AD, the church went through incredible persecution. Just like we're reading at the church at Smyrna, and the similarities are uncanny. And then after that, the third church was the church at Pergamos. Pergamos means married. In 312 AD, a man named Constantine beat his enemies at the Battle of Milvian Bridge, and he made a proclamation. He said, now the church and the government are Pergamos. They are married. And when you see the mess that it caused, it looks just like the church at Pergamos there in the book of Revelation. Then the third church era, or fourth, was the church at Thyatira. That's from about 500 AD to about 1517. That's the the era of the Catholic church. I'm not bashing Catholics. I'm going to bash the Protestants here in just a second. They're good Catholics, bad Catholics, good Jews, bad good Jews, good Muslim, bad... But that church age from about 500 to 1517, you know, we read about the church of Thyatira a couple weeks ago. They're a bunch of perverts, really. What happened in the Catholic church from 500 to about 1517, even Catholic historians would tell you it was, it was pretty nauseating. Popes saying, this is my illegitimate son, and since he's my illegitimate son, I'm going to make him a bishop. Guys like John Tetzel going to churches like ours and saying, hey, I have the power to get your family out of hell. You pay me enough money, I'll get them out of hell. And he took that money and built palaces there in Rome. It was a messed up church. And then after that was the church at Sardis. It's 1517 to about 1750 AD. The church at Sardis had good theology. Nothing wrong with their theology. But they were dead. Which sounds like the Reformation church. If you hear, read about the Reformation church, they started out really well, good theology. And within a few decades, they were just a dead, dead church. Just like the church at Sardis. And then the next church is the church here at Philadelphia, the missionary church. 
Do you know they didn't have a lot of missionary stuff going on until about the 1750s, 1790s, and William Carey started the modern missions movement. There really wasn't much missions going on, and then there was an open door, and they started doing missions just like the church at Philadelphia. And there's one more church to, to talk about. We'll talk about that next week. It's the church at Laodicea. Jesus says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm, and you make me vomit. And that's the modern church, you know, 18, 1900, thereabouts, until the rapture of the church. You you said, Pastor, why are you telling me all this? Because it looks like there are going to be two churches left when Jesus Christ comes back. The church at Philadelphia, the the mission church that's a biblical church following Jesus Christ, and there's going to be the church at Laodicea, a lukewarm, compromising church. Jesus is saying something to the church at Philadelphia that can't just be for the church at Philadelphia. When you read this, this can't be just for this one church 2,000 years ago. Let's read it again. Because you've kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of the trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. It's a promise to the church at Philadelphia that it has to be for more than just those guys living 2,000 years ago. Why? Because he says, I'm going to keep you, I'm going to take you from, do you see that? The Greek word is ek. It literally means out of. He's talking about removal. He says to this church, I'm going to keep you from the hour, not a hour, definite article. There will be a definite period of time. We believe that's seven years where God's wrath is going to come on planet earth. It's going to be horrific. It's going to be worse than anything the human race has ever seen. That is the hour. And then he says that it shall come upon the whole world. Do you see that? This isn't localized geographic persecution. This is a global catastrophe. And then he says this, to test or to try those that dwell on the earth. That word dwell is kataoikuntes. Kata means intensive. Oikos means house. He says, look, there are going to be people who made planet earth their home, their values, their way of doing things. Church, listen to me. Y'all do realize this is not your home. Y'all do realize that, right? We are not to become comfortable in this place. We are not those who are earth dwellers, literally is what that says. It's going to come upon them, but it's not going to come upon you. And then he says, verse 11, behold, I am coming quickly. He's coming quickly. It's been 2,000 years. How can Jesus be coming quickly when it's been 2,000 years? A better word would be suddenly. In other words, when I come back, it's going to be sudden. It's not going to be a gradual return. You put all that together. If we, church, are part of that Philadelphia church age, what Jesus is saying is, hey, people like you, churches like you, before the tribulation comes, I am removing you out of this place, and you're going home with me. Does that excite anybody in this place? That's a promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, it is critical, listen to me, it is critical that we start living like Jesus actually knew what he's talking about when he says, I'm coming back. When you start realizing Jesus Christ may come back today, it does several things. Number one, sin is not as enticing when I realize Jesus may be coming back at any moment. I used to laugh at the old timers like granny. You, you, Jesus, you gonna go to that movie? Yeah. You want... You want Jesus to find you in that movie theater when he comes back? And you should laugh at her. And now, you know, when I'm flipping through t- I don't, when I'm flipping through channels and I get to this movie or whatever, and it's not quote unquote bad stuff, but I ask myself this question, do I really want Jesus to catch me watching this movie when he comes back? You know, sin just doesn't have its enticement when you realize Jesus is coming back. Hey, stress and anxiety lose its power 
When you realize, I know this whole place is going to hell, but Jesus Christ is going to come back and take me out of this place, and I'm just not as stressed, you know. I start walking with Jesus closer. When I realize I'm about to see my master face to face, it draws me closer to Jesus. Listen to this. Robert Robbins was an Air Force pilot during the first Iraq war. After his 300th mission, he was told you can go home. He wasn't expecting that. He thought he had to be there a few more months, but no, 300th mission, you can go home. He decided he was going to surprise his family. He did not tell him that he had been released and he was going home. He flew from Iraq to Germany, from Germany to Massachusetts, and then so that he could surprise his family in the morning, he drove all night from Massachusetts to get home. Didn't tell his family. He wanted to surprise them. When he pulled into the driveway, there was a huge banner out front that said, welcome home. His kids were dressed. His wife was in there. Her hair was fixed. She had a beautiful dress on. He walks in. They celebrate. They weep. They cry. They hug. And when things had finally calmed down a little bit, he said, hey, how did you know I was coming home today? There's a banner out front. You're dressed, the kid's dressed, your hair's done. How did you know I was coming home today? His wife said, I didn't. But once we knew the war was over, we knew you'd be home one of these days. We knew you'd try to surprise us. So we were ready every day, just in case today was the day you were going to return. And I say to you, A war has been fought. Jesus has won. He is coming back. Maybe it's today. Maybe it's tomorrow. Maybe we ought to start living every day as if this was the day that Jesus is coming for the Philadelphia church, the true biblical church. Thanks for joining us for today's Truth Unfiltered broadcast. We invite you to join us again next time for more great teaching from Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor at Cross Assembly Church of Raleigh. Pastor Chad is the teaching pastor at Cross Assembly right here in the Triangle. There are currently two locations, Yonkers Road right off the Beltline near Capitol Boulevard and the North Raleigh campus near Triangle Town Center. But a celebration to soon launch a third campus will be coming in Benson. Cross Assembly believes in building people up and sending out spirit-filled agents of local and global transformation. So missions is part of the core value at Cross Assembly. You're invited to continue listening here on the radio or join in Sundays online or on campus. Visiting crossassembly.org to find out more about Cross Assembly and how you can get connected. That's crossassembly.org. We were starting a process through the private adoption agency. We were presented with the foster care system and the opportunity to become foster parents. 
get a referral for our first daughter. Doctors said she might not walk. There has been severe trauma in the head. She might not see. She might not be able to move. I asked the nurse, can we hold her? And she said yes. About an hour and a half, almost two hours. I remember holding her and praying, God, is this what you want for us and our family? Heal this baby. Touch her. The next day when we came back, the nurse and the doctors were amazed. They were asking us, what did you do to this baby after you left? She started moving, she started reacting, she started tracing, something that she hadn't done in about a month that she had been there. I know a lot of people said, I don't understand how you can foster, where they can be at your home one minute and then maybe a month later when you're starting to get attached, the social worker says, okay, there's a family placement or there's someone else that will be adapting the child. And we said, even if it's for one night, we know that they're in a safe home, we know that they will be loved, and we know that we have the opportunity to show Christ to them. Please pray for the kids in the foster system. Please pray for more people to open up their hearts, to open up their homes. There's opportunities, whether it be supporting a family that has adopted either privately or through foster system. Feels good that our family adopted three little girls. I can't imagine my sisters not being a part of our family because they mean so much to us. And we felt like God was calling us to do that. Maybe God's God calling you to adopt. If you would like more information about Pastor Chad or Cross Assembly, visit crossassembly.org. Again, that's crossassembly.org. You're always welcome to visit us at any of our locations for Sunday morning services. You'll find locations and service times on our website. To support this ministry, text CROSS to 45777. That's CROSS to 45777. Join us again next time for more teaching with Pastor Chad Harvey, teaching pastor of Cross Assembly Church in Raleigh, and more of God's truth unfiltered. Unfiltered.